If you have your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 20. When you're, uh, when you become, or when I found out that uh, when I became an associate pastor, there's a joke that people are like, well, you know, when the lead pastor's sick, you better have one ready. Well, today my day has come. Lance is feeling a little under the weather this morning, so thankfully, though, luckily, I, I go to bed in my Sunday clothes, and I wake up in them with a mic already attached, ready to go at a moment's notice. But uh, we're going to be taking a little detour from our series on the book of Romans, and we're going to look at the first four commands of the Ten Commandments. And now this actually... Fits a little bit. Last week I was talking about the debt of love that we owe one another, that God calls us to love one another, the church. And and when we read Romans 13, which is what I preached out of last week, he talks about commandments. He actually quotes a couple of the commandments that deal with us and our neighbor. And so I thought it would be fitting to actually backtrack a little bit and talk about the first four commandments that deal with us and our God and trying to complete the picture. And uh, so we want to look at Exodus chapter 20, the first 11 verses. Um, I didn't just make this up on the drive here. This is actually, uh, I gave this talk at the Naz Beach Retreat a few weeks ago. So I edited it for an older audience, erased all of my Taylor Swift references, references to be real, and all those types of things. So this is a more, this is a little modified, but something I shared at Naz Beach retreat. One of the things that we learn about God's law, especially in these first four commands, is that God wants us to have our hearts shaped by His Word. One of the questions I want to answer today is, how do you develop a heart for God? How does God shape us into people who worship Him? And one of the primary ways is through the Word of God, and specifically in the law of God. It's his tool, his instrument to shape our hearts for worship. So we develop a heart for God by obeying God's commands. And God has given us a guide in the Ten, in the Ten Commandments to shape us into people who love him and follow him and worship him. And you might think, yourself, wait a minute, that's legalism. You're talking about works. We don't like works. Well, We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, not works. Our works can't contribute anything. Your moral behavior, your ability to obey the Ten Commandments has nothing to do with God saving you. It's purely a gift of His grace. So you're absolutely right. We are not saved by works or by our obedience, but we are saved to works and to obedience. That's a key truth. Jesus even says, if you love me, you will be emotional in worship and will know more theology than everybody else. No, that's not what he says. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So, as I read Exodus chapter 20, I want you to to understand it in light of God's goodness and God's grace to us that he is using these commands to shape our hearts to be worshipers of him. Let me read for you verses 1 through 11 of Exodus 20. 
And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourn who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Let's pray for our time in the word. Our Father, you have given us your law and your word as a gift. I pray that it would open up our hearts to better understand your love for us, to better understand the wisdom of your ways. Your word is refined, it is pure, and it is good. It is right and holy and just, and we pray that it would form our hearts in the people who love you in spirit and in truth. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Is loving Jesus a command or a blessing? Yes. Yes. It is both. The command to love Jesus is a blessing. The blessed man in Psalm 1, the happy man, he finds joy because he meditates on God's law day and night. That is the joy of his life. Because the law of God reflects the wisdom of God. It is God's goodness to us, showing us the path to our ultimate destiny. He created us to worship and obey him. And we will never find rest until we fulfill our purpose in that. And the word of God, and specifically the law of God, lights that path. The path of righteousness, the path to be who God created us to be. A plant that faces away from the sun will shrivel in darkness. But a plant who faces the sun will come to life and blossom. And that's what sin is. When we turn from God, when we're in sin and darkness, we shrivel. But when we turn and repent and face the Lord, we come to life. And the Word of God is meant to bring us to turn towards the light. We were made for the sun, and we cannot blossom without it. God's commands are his blessings. Now, when we think about the law of God, especially the Ten Commandments, there are three uses of the law. This is kind of a classic theological category in the history of the church. First, the law is a mirror. The first use of law is a mirror. It exposes our sin and points to our need for Christ. So we look in the law... 
and it reveals our sin. It reveals our complete inability to save ourselves. And then we realize, I need a Savior. I can't fulfill this law. I need someone to save me from its condemnation. And that's where the gospel comes in. Christ dying in your place, under the condemnation, in your place for your sins, so that the law no longer condemns you. So it's a mirror, but it's also a restraint. The law is for people to be restrained in their evil. If you think about the law, it's a good idea. If, we, if everybody followed the Ten Commandments, we'd have a pretty good community. There wouldn't be any murdering, cheating, stealing, all that stuff. It's a good idea, and it is good for society, and it restrains evil. But finally, the law of God is a guide. If you're a Christian, the law of God is a guide. It's no longer a judge, but a help for you on the path for righteousness. When a father adopts a son, he brings him into a new home with new house rules. And when you read Exodus chapter 20, it begins with this reminder of God's redemption. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So before the law is given, God has delivered his people. It is grace, and then the law flows out of that. There's a distinction there. In other words, God says, first, Before you've obeyed me in any respect, I'm going to save you. I'm going to deliver you by my grace, and you're going to be my people. Before you even receive the law. And now that you are my people, I'm going to give you the law as my house rules. You now belong to me. You're now my children. You are no longer slaves to sin and death. But you have been adopted into my family, and these are my house rules. So the Ten Commandments are actually, they're not how we get into the family of God. They're actually given to us because we are part of God's family. These are rules for his freed children. I have freed you. Now here is how you live free. So we obey God's commands because they are his blessings. So I want to look through the first four commands that relate to God to help us receive this blessing he's given us so that we might be shaped in our hearts to love God. So there's a couple commandments here, right? We have the commandment, do not worship other gods. The second commandment, do not make for yourselves carved images. The third, do not take the name of the Lord in vain. And fourth, remember the Sabbath. So I'm going to talk through each of these and see the wisdom of God in his law. Let's look at this first commandment in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. It's the first thing that he directs us to in his law. Israel is defined by its exclusive loyalty to the one true and living God. Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what defines this people. And, And what they mean by the Lord is one, it's not just that there's one numerical God, but that he is the only God. The one true God, the one living God, over and against all the false idols that surround Israel. Remember Israel, they're trekking around in the desert, in the wilderness, and they're around all these different uh, pagans. And they're worshiping gods shaped after the sun, or animals, or beasts in the field. And they're, they're tempted to worship these other gods. But what does Genesis 1 tell us? God created the sun, moon, stars, birds, beasts, and insects. All the created things that pagans fashion their idols out of, God created them and is sovereign and supreme over them. They are not gods at all. So Genesis 1 reminds them to worship other gods 
is to commit spiritual adultery. You should not worship these other gods. They are not gods at all. God is supreme and the only one worthy of our worship. In the pagan world, you never knew what gods would do next. They were fickle. Think about it in like Greek myths. They're fickle, jealous, and manipulative. They can turn on you in a moment. Beyond that, idols are the products of your own hands. That an idol is something that you create. You carve it out of wood. You make it out of clay. In fact, the prophets, if you read them, they'll make fun of pagans. They'll say, well, if a fire came to your house, who saves who? You're running out with all your little clay pagans saving them from a house. You have to save your idols. They're dependent upon you. But the true and living God saves you. And you are dependent upon him. And that is a key distinction. Only God is a savior. Only God can say, you can, you can pray to those idols all day long. They will not help you. There's only one true and living God. The pagan gods needed to be convinced by their worshipers for them to give them blessing. To perform some ritual. You had to take care of them in a certain way. It was all a bargaining system. I do this for the idol, you do this. But the first thing God does in Genesis 1 is he blesses Adam and Eve. He creates them and he blesses them. Genesis 1.28, And God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Is that a command or a blessing? Yes. Every command of God is given for our good and expresses his generosity and love. The most satisfying things in our life, family, satisfying work, community, These are all things that require something of us. And yet they are also things that make life worth living and joyful and blessed. I'd be willing to bet that none of you has a secret stash of idols in your house. If you do, we can talk about that later. But just because you don't have a stash of idols, that doesn't mean you don't have idols. They may just take a different form. An idol is... Whatever or whoever you give your ultimate allegiance. Idols are the strongest voice of authority in your head apart from God and his word. So You don't have to have a statue in your house to declare your ultimate allegiance to something other than God or someone other than God. In Acts 17, verse 16, Paul has this incredible moment. He's overlooking the city of Athens. And it says that his spirit is provoked. He's troubled and disturbed because he sees that it's filled with idols. He sees the pagan temples. He sees the statues to the pagan gods. And it bothers him. I had a professor in seminary who went to that same spot, and he was overlooking Athens, and he said, the temples are pretty much gone. There's no statues, really. But the idols are still there. In billboards movie posters, advertisements, nightclubs, all these kinds of things. And what are they? They're things that call for your allegiance and they make false promises. They're counterfeit gods. If you turn to me, I will give you life. I will give you life. 
there's an irony here. These idols, they're, they're dumb, they're blind, they can't speak, they don't hear you. They can do nothing for you, but they promise everything. Now, how do you spot a counterfeit? What's the best way in learning how to spot, spot a counterfeit? You learn about the real thing. You know the real thing. You have to know the true and living God and what his word says so that you can know who the false gods are and what the true promises of God are. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ, Romans 10, 17. So God's word is his voice cutting through deception and leading you back to himself, cutting through the darkness and bringing you toward him. I remember I was at a friend's house and uh, his son was kind of distraught. He ran back home and some of his friends were saying that he wasn't allowed to do something that he was allowed to do. And he was distraught, and he's like, they said I couldn't do it, and I wasn't allowed. And, wasn't. and I remember the dad looked at me and said, don't listen to what they say. Listen to what I say. You can do this. Don't listen to their voice. Listen to my voice. The word of God is God speaking to us, saying, don't listen to their words. The lies of the world, the flesh, the devil, all these things. Listen to me. My words cut through the darkness and the deception your own self-deception. Don't listen to their words. Listen to mine. But they might, they might cancel me. Listen to my words, not theirs. But they'll think I'm unloving. Listen to my words, not theirs. But I can't live without them. Listen to my words, not theirs. What are the strongest voices in your minds? What are the strongest words that hold the most authority in your life? Where do do the deepest allegiances lie? They cannot go over God. Jesus talks about this. He says even family ties. Relative to Christ, you, you must hate your brother, your mother, your father, your sister. Relative to your devotion to Christ. He must be the highest thing over politics, over career over anything that any of the good things that we have that we've made the greatest thing Christ must be supreme over all of them and you will become what you worship this is one of the things that the prophets speak about Psalm 135 18 those who make them become like them as do all who trust in them and Isaiah says the same and Jeremiah says the same that as you worship idols you become like them the number one thing God judges Israel is for trusting other gods than him It actually insults God when we don't trust Him. You think about Jesus when He gives His parables. One of the things He says when they reject His parables or they reject His message is, He says, you don't have ears to hear or eyes to see. What's He saying? He's saying, you are deaf, dumb, blind, and mute. And He's speaking to the religious people of His day, the Pharisees, who know better than to make idols. And yet, they have their own idols. They love the applause of men. They love the reward of seeming virtuous before people. And Jesus says they're spiritually deaf and dumb and blind. They become like what they worship. And the only way to turn from idols is to turn to the true and living God. That's what repentance is. To replace idol worship with the true worship of God. So have no other gods. That's the foundation for all of these other commandments. So, We must worship God alone. He has no rivals, no one competing for his place. He is supreme over our lives. But the next three commands teach us how to worship. 
this true God? How do we do it? Now that we know that we need to, how do we actually worship this one true living God? This is the second commandment. Do not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. This is commonly referred to as do not make any graven images. So the first commandment says, don't worship false gods. And the second commandment says, don't worship the true God falsely. Don't worship the true God falsely. God and creation are distinct. The very first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, then everything else. Meaning, God is self-existent. He doesn't need creation to be God in his full glory. He doesn't need us for anything. And yet, all of creation is completely dependent upon him. God transcends creation. He cannot be contained within it. He's not a thing in the world. He is in a class utterly on his own. There is an infinite gap between God and his creation, and that understanding must be upheld in our worship. It matters. This is why God gets specific. Don't make a carved image out of anything in heaven, earth, or the water. That's a reference back to Genesis 1, because God created the heavens and the earth and the water and the land. In other words, don't represent the creator by the things that he has created. Uphold the distinction. The creator-creature distinction. There's a problem. God himself tells Israel to use animals and plants and birds and trees to decorate his holy temple. To in some way represent something about him. He also appears as a pillar of fire and a cloud of dust. So I don't think this is a prohibition against any visual representation of God. Because I think the key verse is verse 5. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. So it seems like there's a little caveat. You must not bow down and serve them. Although many theologians will disagree on this, saying that there should be no images. I think you could go either way. I mean, we could talk, if you want to talk about that after service, I'd be happy to talk to you about that. But I think here, there's a very specific command about bowing down or serving them. And God says not to do this because he is a jealous God. One commentator illustrates this commandment by saying, violating this command is like a man treating a photograph of his wife as if it were his wife while his wife is in the room. He kisses the photograph, speaks to it. Now what's the wife going to say? Please stop that. This is very weird. Also, I'm right here. Right? To worship an image of God is to deny the very presence of God in the presence of God. And what if the husband says, but this image helps me to love you more? She would probably say, still weird, still no. Here's the big point. We're not free to worship God however we want. In Leviticus 10, 1 through 2, Aaron, the high priest, his sons, Nadab and Abihu, they offer up fire and incense in an unauthorized way. They offer up strange fire, and God burns them alive. They're worshiping the true God falsely. It's not what I said you could do. It is dangerous to put our preferences over God's commands. You think, well, okay, well, what about Jesus? Jesus is God in the flesh. If we see Jesus... We bow down and serve him because he's truly God. 
Well, but he's not a representation of God. He's not an, he is God. And so it is appropriate to bow down before the physical risen Christ. But here's the deal. He's not back yet. And until Christ returns, we should bow down to no image of God. No visual representation of God. We should not serve them or treat them in a certain way. And this serving and treating them in pagans... When they would worship images of their gods, those images would actually embody their god. They would treat it as if that really was their god. And they would feed it and wash it and clean it. And I think that's what this command is over and again, saying, don't do that. Don't take a statue of Jesus and treat it like it's Jesus. Don't treat your cross necklace like it's superstitious and magical. Don't worship created things as if they are God. Be careful that you don't conflate an actor's face with the true Christ. Be careful in the ways that you think about visual representations of God. I think we do have to think about that. If you're talking to your kids, making it clear that this picture is not actually Jesus. God is very serious about this. I think there are some traditions in Christianity where they will use icons. I don't think that's appropriate. Using them as ways in which to venerate God, I, I think that that's a violation of what this is talking about. And we don't often think about this, I think often because we have a low view and reverence for God. But we need to take seriously what God takes seriously. This is the second commandment. This is not buried somewhere obscurely in the back of Leviticus. This is the second command. We cannot worship God however we want. We get to the third command. Do not take the Lord's name in vain. God takes how he's worshipped seriously and he takes his name seriously. This is more than just, you know, don't say, oh my gosh, instead of using God or something like that. There's more to it than just sort of that kind of thing. Names identify people in contrast to others. So we don't believe in a generic God, some supreme power. We believe in the God. We believe in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, the one true and living God. His name represents his uniqueness and carries his weight. In the Westminster Confession, it talks about the third commandment, commanding the holy and reverent use of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. I fear that we often speak more reverently about our favorite celebrities than we do God. But who are we talking about here? We're talking about the Supreme Lord, the King of Kings. God takes his own name very seriously, and we ought to as well. What's our attitude in worship? How do we approach the Lord? And he puts his name on our backs. Think about what baptism is. That's a naming ceremony. You're baptized not in the name of God, but in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And your baptism goes with you out into the world as a public declaration of who you belong to. You think about a football game. You often see a son. He runs out, and what does he have on his back? It's not his first name. It's his last name. It's his father's name. And what does his dad tell him? Son, you represent us. Don't forget the name on your back. In other words, you play for more than just yourself on that field. You play for your household. You play for your father's name. And that means something. You represent more than just your individual self. In the same way, we go out with 
God's name on our backs, and we represent him out publicly in the world. We do that individually as Christians. We do that corporately as the church. So this is far more serious than whether you say God when you should say gosh or vice versa. We take the Lord's name in vain if we live hypocritically. If we commit sexual morality, if we slander our brothers, if we live in contradiction to what we confess, not in perfection, but in blatant dishonor for the name that has been put on our backs. We bear his name everywhere we go. And as a church, we declare his name Lord's Day after Lord's Day. That's what identifies us. So don't take the Lord's name in vain. We must represent him well. Genuine love, genuine kindness, a commitment to the truth, a commitment to his honor. And this leads to the fourth commandment. And this is a change. The fourth commandment is a first commandment that's not a prohibition, but a positive command. He says in the fourth commandment, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So these first, the first command is about worshiping God alone, and the next two teach us, okay, what does that mean? But the fourth commandment, it's, it's an interesting one, because it's about us, and it's about worship of God. It's a gift to us, but it also commands us to worship God with our rest, which I don't know if we often think about. Think about the revolution that this fourth commandment brings to this people. God has freed a nation of former slaves. They were oppressed for 400 years. That's what the prophets speak about. They were under the thumb of Pharaoh. And God delivers them by a mighty power and pulls them into freedom. And he says, you are now my people. And he says, your economy is about to change. Your life is no longer about your work. It is about your worship. You will be people now who can rest. It's not about profit maximization anymore. You are going to be my people, and it's going to change the way that you live. Think about how much faith this takes. They live in an agrarian society. You can't just take a day off. You've got to be plowing the fields every single day. And God tells them, for you, one day a week, don't touch the fields. Don't touch the plow. Rest. Enjoy the gifts I've given you. Set this day apart to worship me. That is insanity. You're saying that we're going to not do what all these other nations are doing, working every single day. People got to survive, right? And you're saying we take one day off and we just worship you and rest? God's like, yeah. What's that going to require? Faith. God is really going to take care of you. He seriously actually exists and really is going to take care of you. That's sometimes the hardest thing for us to believe. But God is saying, trust me, don't work. I think this, this is hard for us to do. You know? Are you missing church to cram and study for a test to finish a project? Is work just, I can't, sorry, I can't, 
can't, can't, can't come to the Lord, I can't worship, I got this deadline, all these things. And these are real. But this is where the rubber meets the road. Do you really think God is going to ruin your life because you chose to rest and worship him like he commanded? That's a question about God's sovereignty and God's goodness. Is he going to take care of it? Fundamentally, that, that's, that's the question. God is saying, look, you're going to be okay. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to take care of you. And this actually motivates you to be more efficient with your work during the day because you're like, I want to set apart this day for the Lord. I want to set apart this day for the Lord. This is not just some glorified self-care day. This is worship. The Sabbath for Israel was on Saturday. Work six days, rest the seventh. But Christians would celebrate the Sabbath on what they called the Lord's Day, which was Sunday, the first day of the week. Because they recognize in Christ a new creation has begun. A new week. And so we celebrate our rest on the first day. And that rest is what we live out of the rest of that week. So you come here to be reminded that God cares about you. That God will take care of you. And also that the Lord is the Lord over your time. You ever think about that? You want him to be Lord of all of your life. Well, all of your life, most of your life is how you spend your time. And God is saying, put it on the calendar. You need this. You need to come and worship me. So taking a vacation for half the year, missing church, that's not the same, that's not Sabbath keeping. It's about the true rest your soul needs. You can take a vacation. I'm just saying, think about the Lord's Day. It's not just resting from labor. It is focusing on worshiping the Lord, devoting your day to Him, not because He needs it, but because we need it. He didn't need us to gather. He didn't gain anything from it. It is for him to dispense his blessings upon us, to strengthen us. Think about all the stresses of your work. Your work is most of your life. And then you come here. God wants you to bring the burdens of work to him. Your boss, it's tough. There's relational issues. You're tired. You're not sure what your career is going to do or what's going to happen. They're part of your life and they matter to God. And when you come to the Lord's Day, he wants you to unload those burdens upon him and say, God, Help me with my work. Take care of this for me. This is bigger than me. This is more massive than me. I need you to handle this for me. And he says, good. Give me those burdens, and I give you rest. Bring your work here before the Lord, because he cares about it, and he wants you to rest. He doesn't want it to dominate your life. He, doesn't, he wants your life to be more than just those achievements. And it's a question of, do you think that God is gracious. And you have limits. You have physical limits, emotional limits, relational limits. And God is saying on the Sabbath, you can just be a human. You can just be a creature. I know that you are dust. And this also provides an opportunity for solitude and reflection, meditating on the word, thinking and praying for a little bit before you say something or go into your work. How often do we have time just in solitude with the Lord that would calm a lot of our anxieties, calm a lot of our stresses, calm a lot of our reactivity to everything? And God gives us the Sabbath to do that. It's His idea, not ours. You're not God. And on the Lord's Day, 
taking a Sabbath, you are living that out. I'm not God. I can't change the world. I can't fix everything. I can't fix anything. I'm so limited in what I can do. And God's like, that's okay. I'm going to be God. You don't need to be God. Rest. That might be the hardest commandment for us to fulfill because it feels so righteous to just be grinding all the time. And it's not. So, have no other gods. Do not have graven images. Do not take the Lord's name in vain and honor the Sabbath. These are the guideposts that God gives us. Take some time this week. Meditate on these commandments. It's not a ladder to heaven. These are a checklist for the heart. If you have pain in your body, your doctor is going to ask you a series of diagnostic questions to identify the root. And this is God's diagnostic. Which one of these pricked you? Which one of these bothered you? And you're like, "Uh, yeah, that's me. Well, that's God's grace to you saying, I want you to think about this. What are the anxieties that cripple you? The sins that weigh you down? Is there conflict in your life? Are you exhausted? These are all check engine lights from God. And His Word and His law says, I want to help you. I'm your Father. I'm giving you a lamp for your feet. A lamp lights the path forward and it exposes things so that they can be dealt with. So this is God's good gift to you. Think on these things. Meditate on it. Be like the blessed man. Let it be the delight of your heart. And this is for God's children, for God's people, a sign of his love to you. Psalm 119.97, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. We start doing that, the riches of God will overflow in our lives.